Welcome to Convention Pulpit, Wesleyan Voices Past and Present, brought to you through the Ministry of Inner Church Holiness Convention. Visit our website for an entire library of great sermons and more information on this ministry, www.ihconvention.com. This sermon was preached in 1996 at a regional IH convention by Larry Smith. I know you will enjoy this wonderful message entitled, Victory in the Graveyard. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on and on. Keep passing it on, keep passing it on, keep passing it on and on. Praise to our Lord for his goodness and grace. I would ask you to stand for the reading of a scripture lesson. We are turning to the 20th chapter of the gospel according to St. John. My wife asked me tonight what the title of the sermon is, and I have no idea what the title is. I do have a text, and we'll see where we go from there. (laughs) The 20th chapter of the gospel of St. John. Beginning the, the reading of the 19th verse, we read from the sacred scriptures, St. John chapter 20, verse 19. Then the same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, came Jesus and stood in the midst and saith unto them, Peace be unto you. And when he had so said, he showed unto them his hands and his side. Then were the disciples glad when they saw the Lord. Then Jesus, then said Jesus to them, Peace be unto you, as my Father has sent me, even so send I you. When he had said this, he breathed on them, and saith unto them, Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Whosoever sins ye remit, they are remitted unto them. And whosoever sins ye retain, they are retained. May the Spirit of God add his blessing to the reading of the word tonight. Will you bow your heads with me in prayer? Our Father and our God, we don't know how to preach. We don't know how to do anything except as you help us. But we do remember the words of St. Paul that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so, Lord, we come to you in our weakness and in our inability with a powerful sense of our own futility. We would lean heavily upon our Lord Jesus tonight, praying that he will speak to our waiting hearts, that he shall stand among us tonight, that he will assure us that he has not left us to our own devices that he is here tonight to speak words of grace, words of peace, and words of power. Have your way. Give anointing and liberty for the preaching of the word of God. Not, Lord, that any one of us shall glory in your presence, but that your name shall be honored and exalted among us. Not unto us, O Lord, not unto us, but unto thy name give glory. We ask in the dear name of Christ, our blessed Lord. Amen. You may be seated. What was the most exciting day of your life? I suppose most of us who are Christians here tonight would say without second thought, it was the day of our conversion. It was the day when Jesus Christ became our Lord and Savior, and we passed from death unto life. But after that, what was the most exciting? exciting day of your life. Perhaps it was the day you graduated from high school or the day you stood at a marriage altar and took sacred vows, at which time you were united with another person until death shall you do part. 
Maybe it was a job promotion or a promotion in military service. But we all have those pivotal points in our lives that we never forget. In recent years, it's been rather popular to ask the question, what were you doing the moment that John Kennedy was assassinated? Of course, you young people weren't doing anything, but for those of us who are what the old Methodist discipline described as those of riper years, we have our recollections, we have our memories, uh, those pivotal points that are outlined in our life. Certainly, as we open the sacred text of Scripture tonight, there is set before us a scene that the participants never forgot. It was a moment that was etched forever in their memory. It was the evening of the first Easter day that they had gathered together in Jerusalem behind doors that were barred and locked, the Bible says, because of the fear of the Jews. If you can gather with me tonight a little bit of the picture that is portrayed here in the sacred text in St. John chapter 20, as well as in the companion text in Luke chapter 24, where other details are given to us of that first Easter evening. The people of God had gathered there by the light of a flickering lamp without doubt behind barred doors. The Bible describes something of their confusion and their bewilderment. It had been a weekend filled with emotional and physical exhaustion as well as the most crushing disappointment of their lives. These were the ones who had followed the Lord Christ throughout the nearly three years of his earthly ministry. They had seen him heal the blind so they could see again. They had seen him make the paralytics to walk, and they had even observed him as he had raised the dead. Everywhere there had been the excitement, anticipation as they had come to Jerusalem. Perhaps it is now time that the king will declare that he is to become the legitimate heir of David and proclaim his royalty in David's ancient capital. How their hearts must have thrilled the preceding Sunday, just one week earlier on Palm Sunday, when in triumph the children had cried out, Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. Surely it is now, on that first Palm Sunday, that the king is coming to triumph in the ancient capital to set forth the royal degree that is his by natural and legitimate right. But that had also been a week of crushing disappointment and disillusionment. As the two Emmaus disciples that very Easter day had said as they trudged down that dusty Judean road, we had hoped that it had been he who had redeemed Israel. For you see, all of us have our hopes and our disappointments and our disillusioning times those times when it seems like life has not been fair with us, when it seems as though the crushing burdens that we have to bear are almost more than are conceivably possible for any human being to carry. And so it was to those disciples that Easter day, there behind locked doors, there barred, there in the gloomy shadows by the flickering of a lamp, they had gathered in mortal terror, for their king had been crucified the one that they had hoped had redeemed Israel, the one about whom they had argued who should sit either on his right or his left when he would come into his kingdom, uh, had been taken from them. Uh, they had seen him stripped naked. They had seen him vilified and spat upon, uh, visiting upon him uh, by Roman soldiers, the most excruciating agony. Then they had seen him lifted upon a cross in the village garbage dump, the city garbage dump outside the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, everything seemed to be gone. Everything seemed to be lost. Catch, if you will, with me something of the pathos and the agony of that first Easter night as they had gathered there behind locked doors in mortal terror of their own life because the rumors were out that the Jews who had crucified their master on Friday were also out to seize and arrest them, and perhaps they were to share his same fate. Perhaps they likewise were to be tortured and nailed to crosses, and some of them had already fled the city, as we read of the story of Cleopas and the unnamed disciple who that very afternoon had gone down out of Jerusalem to Emmaus. There they were, there they were, 
the handful of men who very soon were to burst out into the ancient world with such dynamic force that even great Caesar's imperial throne was to shake beneath their dynamic impact. Here were the men, a handful of them, and maybe there were some women there, because certainly women were given a high place in the early church. After all, women that very day had come among them and had reported stories of the Easter of the empty tomb, and Magdalene had said that she had even seen one whom she had thought had been the gardener, but who had identified himself as the risen Lord. But they shook their heads because women were not considered creditable to ever testify in an ancient Jewish court. And they thought that under the pressure of hysteria, the moment of high emotional impact, that idle tales and excitement were circulating among them, and they were absolutely bewildered. Have you ever been bewildered in life? Have you ever been so caught up in the agony of the moment that you weren't sure where to turn? These were the men who were to become the first bishops and overseers of the apostolic church who were to carry the gospel of Jesus to every part of the known world. These were the ones who very shortly were to turn the world upside down, but not tonight, not behind those locked doors barred Frightened, intimidated for their lives, bewildered and crushed. The reports of the women had stirred them and they had shaken their heads about it all. And then Peter and John had said they had had an interesting foot race down to the empty tomb there in the garden tomb and had seen that the tomb was also empty and nobody understood the full import of it all. Can you see them scratch their heads? Can you see them shrugging about it all? Almost paralyzed by fear. And now something else had happened. According to St. Luke chapter 24, the doors had burst open and two men, the men who had come all the way back seven miles from the dusty little village of Emmaus, had come in now with their story. And they were breathless. After all, they had walked seven miles down to Emmaus and then uh, they had come all the way back. Excitement seemed to reign everywhere in their words. They told that they had walked with the risen Lord that afternoon. Uh, they had told how that their hearts had burned within them as the risen Lord had spoken of his own passion and death and of his resurrection. As he had opened to them the scriptures, how that Christ must suffer and then be raised from the dead. And then... They said how it was that at the table in the little village of Emmaus, in the breaking of the bread, suddenly their eyes were opened as he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. And all at once, the scriptures say that suddenly the risen Lord stood among them. Doors were not opened. Uh, there were no trap doors that admitted him to come. No bars were drugged back. No locks made their grinding sound. Uh, suddenly, the Lord Christ stood in their midst. And he greeted them with the familiar Jewish greeting, when all was well, peace be unto you. The scriptures tell us that something dramatically happened. At uh, first of all, they were terrified because St. Luke tells us they thought it was a ghost. Now, everybody believed in ghosts in those days. Uh, I'll be right honest, I still enjoy a good ghost story once in a while. I remember when I was a child, I loved to hear my father and others tell ghost stories uh, that sent goose pimples up and down my back and my hair stood straight up. Uh, I was scared to death and I loved every bit of it. Uh, I'll venture there are some of you who like to tell ghost stories too, but to them it wasn't merely a passing fantasy. They thought there was a ghost. After all, they had seen their Lord crucified, and men who were nailed to Roman crosses simply didn't come back. They were placed upon their cross to die. They had known their Lord was crucified, and some of them at least had run away. At one time they all had fled. The scriptures say how many of them returned, we do not know. We know that the holy women kept their vigil there at the cross, and we know that St. John had made his way back to keep his vigil at the foot of his master's cross. But they all knew that our Lord was dead. They knew that his 
lifeless body had been taken down from the cross in order that the Jewish Sabbath might not be profaned. They knew that expensive ointment and spices had been used in his wrappings and that he had been placed in the borrowed tomb of Joseph of Arimathea and they knew that a huge stone had been placed there with the imperial seal placed upon that tomb and that a Roman guard stood vigil to see that no one dared open the stone. And yet before their very eyes in the gloomy darkness there stood the one whom they knew had been crucified, the one with whom they had walked for three years, the one who had often broken bread with them, and the one with whom they had shared the most intimate experiences of life, their teacher, their master, and yet he was dead. They couldn't understand it, and you and I couldn't have understood it either. Uh, as they looked on in horror, uh, afraid, and the Lord Christ begins to reassure them of his presence, uh, standing in their midst. And may I suggest to you tonight the message of that first Easter evening is the message that we so desperately need in the world in which we live. Here we are in this great area of central or eastern Pennsylvania, an historic area. I love to go into Lebanon today and I look at all the old churches with their high steeples and all the old buildings. Oh, I love history. I can't imagine why anybody doesn't just love history. I love it. I, I eat it. I drink it. My wife is here tonight. We were married 10 weeks ago last Saturday and I had her to six cemeteries on our wedding trip. Right, Carol? Uh, it was true. And I, I, I think it's wonderful uh, to, to recapitulate the history of an area. And what better place to go than to a cemetery? And besides, we Christians know what happened in a cemetery. Uh, it was in a cemetery that Jesus our Lord first proclaimed the triumph of his resurrection. Uh, that's why the old Moravians had their Easter day sunrise services uh, in cemeteries. Uh, they blew their horns and sounded their bells uh, and strummed their instruments uh, among the headstones of the Christian dead uh, because let me remind you as someone has said there is no more empty place on the face of the earth than a Christian cemetery uh, because it was in a cemetery that Jesus first proclaimed the triumph of his resurrection. Uh, May I suggest to you tonight uh, that it is still that triumph uh, that we proclaim uh, in the last decade of the 20th century. The new millennium is right upon us uh, if our Lord Christ should tarry. Uh, and I see no reason to believe that he will not, though I must always be prepared for his coming, uh, knowing in such an hour as we think not, then shall the coming of the Son of Man be. A thousand years ago, at the end of the first millennium, our ancestors flocked to the churches of Europe in expectancy of the, of the second advent. I have read the accounts of the great cathedrals of Europe flocked there by our ancestors who were convinced that by the year 1000, our Lord would have returned in judgment. Another thousand years has almost passed away. I do not know when our Lord shall come again. But I do know tonight that he is in our midst just as surely as he was on that first Easter evening. And he assures us that we too are Easter people. We are people of the resurrection. However dark it may be and however discouraging it may be even if Bill and Hillary are in the White House uh, there is the promise that our Lord Christ stands among us and he assures us uh, that his triumph is our own triumph uh, after all the Christian faith began in a cemetery uh, the most uh, gloomy and desolate of places uh, and there Jesus proclaimed his triumph and there tonight in the graveyard of our hopes and of our expectations uh, he comes to assure us uh, that he who is dead is alive forevermore uh, that his victory is our victory uh, his triumph is our triumph uh, amen uh, we're Easter people uh, his triumph is our own um, and so then tonight let us consider three things that are implicit in the words of our text that our Lord uttered to them that first Easter evening uh, and that he also assures us as he stands tonight in our very midst. First of all, Jesus reassured his disciples. 
I would have you to notice he standed there among us. His first job was to bring hope to those men who had lost all hope. Let me remind you that so he stands among us tonight to assure us of hope. Men die when there is no hope. Hope is the absolute necessity of continued human existence. May I suggest to you tonight that our Lord stands among us and he reminds us uh, that he stands in our very midst. He is not about to forsake us in the last decade of the 20th century. Uh, and we dare not become so enamored with the morning newspaper that we forget the big picture, the sweep of the ages. Uh, that in every age, in every century of the Christian church, our Lord has walked among the candlesticks. Our Lord has done his work. Uh, he stands among his people and he says, I have not let you go out to do my work alone, but I am with you through the power of the Spirit. Uh, I have not abandoned you amidst the crucible of the most horrible agonies. Uh, I have not left you alone. Um, reading just again recently, or talking to someone recently about the fall of the Romanian dictator just four or five years ago, a madman who ruled uh, one little pocket of the communist empire, Cuchescu, a man so violent and so evil and so wicked uh, that it seemed like no force on earth could topple him. Uh, but saints their watch were keeping. Uh, all over Romania there were saints persecuted, driven underground, uh, who cried to the Lord of hosts. And one night, uh, as all over Eastern Europe, communist regimes, after communist regime was toppling, uh, they begin to gather in Bucharest. Uh, Christians from all over the capital. Uh, the guards didn't know what to do. Uh, it was against the law to do that. Uh, but these men came, uh, these women came uh, with lighted candles. They didn't come with guns. They didn't come uh, with tanks. And not even communists know what to do when believers began uh, to sing their hymns and to offer their prayers. Uh, it was a most memorable experience, Charles Colson tells, as they gathered there that night, as the communist troops looked on in utter amazement, as they began to kneel all over the city square, and they began to repeat the Lord's Prayer together, uh, hundreds and hundreds of them, uh, without arms, uh, repeating, Our Father who art in heaven, uh, hundreds of them. Let me suggest to you tonight, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Uh, it's not guns and tanks, uh, but I will tell you, hundreds of Christians saying the Lord's Prayer are a match to any army of communists. Uh, amen. Uh, thanks be to God for his works among us. Uh, and I suppose you get tired of hearing it. Uh, Brother Sankey, I appreciate it at your church. But I am so glad that our Lord assures us in the actions of the last decade that he is the Lord of history. And it surely wasn't most of our faith that brought down the communist regimes in Eastern Europe. Most of us were sure how Gog and Magog were about to run over us. And we even had prophecy charts to prove it, didn't we? We had it all figured out. And so they would drag our young people up before camp meetings and remind us they were all going to die in communist concentration camps. I remember that when I was just a teenager. We were all sure the communists were going to spirit us at all away. Under every bed and under every post, there were communists lurking. Uh, yet the interesting thing is, as someone has said, uh, I don't know of a colonist church that was ever closed in the United States by communists. Uh, but I know plenty of them that were closed by church fusses and church feuds and, uh, and uh, grumbling church bosses. Uh, Amen. Uh, but I do know this this evening, uh, that while you and I are sitting here, uh, that the statues of Marx and Lenin uh, are lying in rubble all over Eastern Europe. Uh, and their works are unread. And right outside Lenin's tomb tonight, Bibles are being passed out by earnest Christians. Uh, hear me tonight. Uh, Jesus, our Lord, stands among us and he assures us as he assured them then, uh, I am the living Lord. Uh, I stand among you. Uh, I am not about to abandon you uh, in all the agonies and in the crucibles of life. Uh, they were intimidated and paralyzed with fear. And how often uh, you and I are intimidated by fear. If there is anything we need again, it is an infusion of hope among our people. Uh, everywhere we sing our dreary ditties. Not here tonight. Uh, it sounded uh, a little bit like the anti-post of heaven tonight. Uh, but I'll tell you, there's a lot of our places uh, where it's the funeral dirges and uh, all you hear is the gloomy 
display of, of, of how awful things are and how everything is getting worse and worse. I've heard that all my life, and I thought for sure after the communist regimes of Eastern Europe had fallen, there'd be some hope again. You would think that people would get their heads up and get over the tuckhead. But don't worry, the pessimists have already recovered. They have made the sufficient... Uh, uh, the sufficient additions and amendments to the prophecy charts and they're back at it again uh, spreading gloom and doom and the paralysis uh, of defeat among our people. Listen tonight. Uh, hear me. Uh, I'm talking about the bright optimism of grace. Uh, the very heart of our Wesleyan message uh, is found in the fifth chapter of Romans where sin did abound. Grace did much more abound. Uh, that's the story of your life and that's the story of my life. And let me remind you that's going to be the story of our whole race one of these days where sin did abound grace did much more abound and if there is anything our young people need again is to hear the message of hope the message of gladness unto you was born this day in the city of David a savior who is Christ the Lord glory to God in the highest peace on earth peace on earth goodwill to men even now our Lord Christ is reconciling all things to himself and the promise is that someday the knowledge of the Lord shall cover the earth as waters shall cover the sea. Hallelujah. And the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ. Uh, brethren, hear me. I'm not going to argue eschatology with anybody, but I want to tell you it's a sham farce that would take away from us the bright hope of the message we preach. The message we preach is the power of God into salvation. Uh, and in every age and time, it has been the power of the gospel uh, that has broken down the most entrenched opposition. Uh, we came to our ancestors in Eastern Europe. And some of you have heard me preach this, but I, I'm on it again. And maybe I'm on my favorite tangent. But it's a lot better favorite tangent than some of the ones I've heard around our churches anyway. Uh, I'll tell you, uh, our ancestors uh, in, the, in the dark forests of northern Europe uh, and in Scandinavia, the dark forests of Germany uh, and other places, my ancestors and yours, uh, they were a wicked lot uh, who lived in the dark forests and who worshipped Thor and Odin and who butchered their enemies and hung their dripping bodies from trees as human sacrifices to the gods. Our ancestors, folk... Uh, Yours and mine, uh, dancing half-naked savages uh, around the bonfires, worshiping the evil spirits of the woods. But then the gospel came to Europe. Uh, it was the missionaries who came uh, with their blessed message of peace and grace that transformed uh, the ancestral land of our ancestors. Uh, and it's still the power of the gospel in every age and time. Uh, it was the power of the gospel that brought the Roman world to its knees uh, until the ancient apologists could write to the pagans by the end of the third century, we have taken, uh, we have taken your sons. Uh, you pagans, we have taken your daughters. Uh, we have taken your schools. We have taken your marketplaces. Uh, all we have left to you is your pagan temples. Uh, and the time came uh, when even the pagan temples were turned into churches that were honored uh, the name of Christ our Lord. Uh, one of them still stands in the heart of Rome, the Pantheon. Uh, one of the ancient temples was turned into a Christian church. Uh, and the cross was raised where once there had been bloody sacrifices uh, to Apollo and the other members of the Roman and the Greek pantheon of gods. Uh, hear me, this is the gospel we preach. For a thousand years in Europe there was such darkness and ignorance and superstition uh, far greater than anything you and I know in America today. But in response to prayer, the mighty fires of reformation broke out across all of Europe. Uh, in the 18th century, uh, the great Wesleyan revival so transformed the face of England uh, that secular historians say it saved England from a bloodbath such as the French Revolution brought to that unhappy land. It leaped across these shores. I look across western Pennsylvania and eastern Pennsylvania as well as my little country churches out in Nebraska. It was the Methodist circuit riders that rode the very crest of the circuits everywhere and the very, very cutting edge of civilization. They were there. I read the accounts before the wagons were even unloaded. They were there. Old Richard Nolly. Oh, Richard Nolly was one of them. He later paid with his own life for the gospel of Christ. Now someplace in Mississippi, 
<coughs> just reading it recently, Richard Nolly rode up. He saw wagon tracks. Uh, and so uh, he followed the wagon tracks in this remote area of Mississippi. Uh, he got there and there was a man who was not even finished loading and loading his wagon. Uh, he introduced himself. The fellow looked at him and he said, another Methodist preacher, uh, another Methodist preacher. When I was in Virginia, you caught me there and I lost my wife and my daughter there and they got converted and became Methodist. And now I came to Mississippi to get away from you uh, and I haven't even got my wagon unloaded. Richard Nolly looked back and said, Sir, if you go to heaven, you're going to find us there. And I'm afraid if you go to hell, you'll find some of us there. And you see already what it's like here in this world. So you'd better hurry up and make peace with us now. That was the driving passion that transformed the western frontier as those Methodist circuit riders with their message of redemptive love, the piercing power of holiness, transformed the trend until at the dawn of the Civil War, one out of every three American Protestants had become a Methodist. Historians call it the Methodist era, the age when every part of America was being impacted by the power of the holiness message. Folk, I get so weary and tired about how hearing is the worst that it's ever been. It's the worst you've ever been, but then it's the only time you've ever been either. I tell you, God has given us something more to do than sing the molly grubs. We're so good at singing the molly grubs. We sang tonight, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Reminds me of another story. I get telling Methodist stories and I forget about what I'm doing. But since I found that people like the stories... In the 1870s, uh, Chaplain McCabe, C.C. Uh, McCabe, later became bishop, uh, was the assistant secretary for church extension of the Methodist Episcopal Church. A godly man, a holy man. Uh, everywhere they were building churches, all over the opening west. Uh, one day riding in a choo-choo train uh, as the soot and the cinders and the smoke billowed out from the great funnel, reading the newspaper. He read where Robert Ingersoll, <coughs> the great freethinker, the great agnostic speaker who jeered at Christianity had been at a recent convention of free thinkers. Uh, and he had said at that convention, according to the newspaper, that Christianity is a lost thing. The churches are dying everywhere. Chaplain McCade felt something stirring in his heart, and he wasn't about to let that go by. Uh, he got off at the next railroad station and went to the telegrapher, and he telegraphed to Robert Ingersoll these words, Dear Robert, uh, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Uh, you say the churches are dying, uh, and I'm paraphrasing now. I want you to know that we're already building one church a day. We're building one church a day all over the front, along the frontier. Earlier, I read the account where he was pleading with his people, uh, send us the money. And he said, we'll send a thousand church bells ringing along the frontier. A thousand church bells ringing. I would to God that we could raise the funds to send another thousand church bells ringing in the inner cities and the frontiers of America. If there's anything we need to do again is to get our eyes on the harvest. Quit our hand wringing and quit holding our, our pity parties and our funerals for the church of Christ. What are some of you going to do if Jesus doesn't come back? Well, I know what we're going to do. We do our master's bidding. We put our hands to the job. We put our hands to the task. Amen. And with the assurance that he will not leave us nor forsake us. And so it was that Chaplain McCain said, Robert, uh, we're building one church a day, and we're contending that before very long we're going to be building two churches a day. Uh, he went back and wrote a little song, and all over the churches all over America, they began to sing, building two a day, building two a day, building two a day. As the morning sunrise comes, uh, the light falls on another little white frame Methodist church out on the frontier. And by the time the sun sets, uh, the rays of the sunset gently glow around another little frame church that's been erected. Uh, that's still our best answer to the atheists and the agnostics uh, and all the sneering skeptics of our time. Uh, Lord, help us tonight to get our eyes on setting the church bells ringing again. And uh, help us, Lord, to start building uh, at least one or two a year. Uh, if we can't do it one or two a day, Lord, get our eyes on the harvest. Uh, he assures us of his presence tonight. Uh, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. 
Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. The Lord has never called us to be cowards and wimps in this battle, I can assure you of that. Uh, he has never called us to be Christian undertakers. And I'm not talking about the kind of undertakers that are professional undertakers. I'm talking about the Christian undertakers that are always undertaking uh, to put Christ church underground. Uh, amen. Some of them even go so far as to say the church was just an afterthought, a parenthesis. Uh, nonsense. The church is God's great evangelistic agency. Uh, he's put us in this world. Uh, he has set upon this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Uh, Lord, help us to get our eyes off the morning newspaper. Uh, and get our eyes upon the promises of our Lord who says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Hallelujah, I will be with you to the very end of the age. Upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And he assures us of the gladness of his presence tonight. The second thing Jesus does, not only does he reassure us as he also reassures the disciples on that first Easter night. But secondly, he energizes them because the Bible says that he breathed upon them and said, Receive ye the Holy Spirit. I thank God tonight that our Lord does not send us into our world to do his works by ourselves. You young people tonight, as you go out and do his work, and I think of these splendid, clear faced Young people here tonight, I am challenging you in the name of Christ to a complete devotion to his cause and to his purpose. Uh, amen. A complete consecration to his cause. Uh, he has promised uh, that we do not go alone to do our work. Uh, I know all about the inner city ghettos. Uh, I know all about the alienation of race and clan. Uh, I know about the drug problems in the inner cities that are so great that no politician can finally fix them. Uh, but I do know a Lord Christ who enters into our area. It is he tonight who walks the pavements of Philadelphia and Harrisburg. It is he tonight who in Paris and in Moscow and in London and in a thousand other cities walk the pavements of the inner streets. He who wept over Jerusalem still weeps over the seething agony of our culture, so derelict and so abandoned and so utterly depraved. And yet in the midst of it all, our Lord Jesus offers hope and he sends you and me as messengers of grace uh, messengers of reconciliation uh, and if all we do is wring our hands and feel sorry for ourselves we make ourselves more a part of the problem than we do the solution uh, there is anything again we need it is the mighty energy of the spirit to send us out to do our master's work we're not alone to do the work of God Grace has already begun to done its work. As Dr. Steele says, Christ has already started to save the world. Every man or every woman born into this world is already born in a state of grace that he would not have been except for the unconditional benefits of Christ's atonement according to the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. We lost all in Adam, but we have already gained back all in Jesus Christ provisionally the whole world is saved there is atonement for the whole race amen every little babe brought into this mother's arms into this world is under the unconditional overarching mercies of God why our Lord Jesus himself said of such is the kingdom of God Ah, the original title of condemnation is now provisionally reversed for the entire race. Uh, amen. Hallelujah. And all we need to do is to begin to respond to grace. Uh, hallelujah. To respond to grace. And you're either responding to it tonight or you're not responding to it. It's always the response of the moment. Right now, uh, I lift up my heart to God and I don't care how desperate the situation may be. We Wesleyans believe that there are no sins that Jesus Christ cannot forgive. There are no habits that are so deep, Brother Arnold, that he cannot break. The only unpardonable sin that there is is a final and persistent rejection of the offers of grace. Hear me tonight. Wherefore, he is able to save to the uttermost all of those who come to God by him. That's the message that has changed the world again and again. The message that God gives us tonight as he energizes us likewise through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, our Lord Christ had spoken earlier 
in those middle chapters in St. John of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Uh, he said, it is expedient for you that I should go because if I do not go and leave you, the Spirit will not come. He told of the Comforter, the Spirit, who would come to represent him in his name and to do his works. For this blessed Spirit, this Holy Comforter, that would come, uh, would not speak of himself, but rather he would come to glorify the Lord Christ. Uh, he was to continually deal with the hearts of men and women. For when he has come, uh, the Lord Christ said that he would reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of coming judgment. Uh, likewise, he would lead the church into all truth, uh, representing the living Lord. Uh, and let me suggest to you tonight, you preacher boys that are going out to do the work of your master, and thank God that you don't stand in the pulpit alone. How often have I stood fumbling and filled with all kinds of mistakes, all kinds of errors, and I still, and Brother Sankey would tell you how terrified I was almost to stand behind the pulpit tonight. He and I commiserated with each other for a while before service. But I want to suggest to you tonight that we don't go to the pulpit by ourselves. The Lord Christ is present through the power of the Holy Spirit. It is He tonight who stands in this congregation. He has promised that even two or three be gathered together in my name. There am I in the midst of them, all through the power of the Spirit. It is the Holy Spirit tonight who breathes life and grace into the church. And in the hours of greatest darkness, in the hours of the greatest apostasy, in the most unlikely places, life has begun to flourish again. I think in the 18th century, in that time when it seemed like revival would never come, in the most unlikely of places, in Oxford University, in a place where men and women laughed and scorned Christianity, where professors did not teach and students did not study, where gambling and uh, illicit sexual relations uh, and every kind of wickedness flourished, in that hotbed of vice and sin, uh, there was the beginnings of what was to become the greatest revival since the days of the primitive church. May I suggest to you tonight, as Dr. Hinson says, the same spirit that breathed over the cosmos of creation uh, and said, let there be light, is still breathing over our darkened world tonight, over our chaos, and everywhere he is saying, let there be light, let there be light, let there be light, let there be light. And we Christians have banked our souls that after the darkness is all fled away, the light will shine as brightly as it has always shown. The light was here before the darkness, and it will be here after the darkness has passed away. Hallelujah this evening. Through the power of the Spirit, right tonight he speaks to us. He energizes us. This was the earnest of Pentecost, the pledge of Pentecost some days later. Now our master is saying, receive you the spirit, the pledge of that mighty fullness of Pentecostal baptism that was to take place soon thereafter when the first thing the glorified Savior would do was to pour out upon his church the promise of the Father, the mighty baptism of the Spirit of grace. And still he baptizes his church with gladness and with grace. And still he baptizes believers tonight, purifying their hearts by faith, sanctifying and renewing them in love. Uh, hear me tonight. Uh, this is not our battle only. It is the battle of our Lord Christ. And if he's not interested in it, then you and I had better not be. But I'll tell you, he is the most intimately concerned and interested. Uh, this, this evening, is the promise uh, of the Spirit. Uh, the Lord Christ is here with us uh, through the power of the Spirit. It is the Spirit tonight that tears away our excuses and our sin. Uh, it is the Spirit tonight that causes us to flee to Christ. Uh, always the Spirit, the Spirit of grace, the Spirit of glory. Receive ye the Holy Ghost. Uh, finally tonight, our Lord Christ, not only did he reassure his disciples that Easter night, not only did he energize them with the Spirit, but he also commissions them. Uh, hear the words of our blessed Lord as we take them from the words of the gospel. First of all, our Lord tells them, I am giving you peace. Uh, peace be unto you twice. Uh, peace, the Prince of Peace, who brings reconciliation between us and God, uh, who assures us that he gives us peace that the world cannot give us. Uh, 
the peace that was heralded over the Judean hillsides, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. It is that same Lord Christ who brings peace to our restless hearts. And let me remind you that you never will find peace till you find peace in Christ Jesus. For God has made us, as St. Augustine said for himself, and we shall not find our rest till we find our rest in God. But it is that same Lord Christ tonight who reminds us that there is work for us to do. Uh, he says to them, my peace I give you. Uh, my peace I am leaving. Peace, he says, is yours. Uh, through my presence, uh, you are to be ministers of grace. Uh, you are to be messages of peace. Uh, and the Bible tells us in the words of our Lord uh, that even as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you as my ambassadors uh, to do my work in this world. And St. Luke reminds us that our Lord Jesus also added uh, that repentance and remission of sin should be preached in his name to all the nations. Uh, and you are witnesses of the same. Um, and then I read those words that literally seem to leap out of the pages. Whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted unto them. Uh, and whosoever sins ye retain... Uh, they are retained. No nobler work was ever given to men or angels than the work that the Lord Christ gave to his disciples that night. And no greater work has anyone ever been given than the work that he gives to you and me tonight. Meetings like this, thank God for the sense of the divine presence. But if all we do is vegetate and admire one another and feel good, may I say we will have failed to do the work that our Lord is calling us to do. I am so excited by what you folks are doing here in this church and in other churches. That's exactly what God has called us. We are to be small. We are to be light in the midst of a dark world. And yet the entire world waits for the message of Jesus' gospel. There are a thousand church bells, yet they're to be set to be ringing all over America. Even already there are signs around this world that God's work is going. Sometimes we're so paralyzed by the darkness of our own secularism. Uh, and it's a horrible travesty. But let me remind you that God has not abandoned his world uh, any more than it was when great Caesar ruled on the banks of Tiber uh, and 12-year-old boys were used as prostitutes uh, when half of the city were slaves and were butchered for goldfish to feed upon uh, in an age when criminals uh, and godless men ruled. Uh, when moral depravity was so great in ancient times uh, that wealthy Roman matrons bragged at how many women they had slept with the week before and marriage existed only to carry on the family name. That was the age to which Christ sent his disciples in the first century. Uh, I'm sure glad they didn't have our prophecy charts, aren't you? Uh, I'm sure glad they weren't prophesied by the kind of religious doldrums that I've heard preached sometimes. Uh, it was an age so corrupt uh, that in the ancient Roman theaters, uh, Dr. Steele reminds us that no sooner had the stage plays begun that the crowds begin to cry, let them be stripped. And so it was that the actors and actresses were stripped totally naked as they played their horrible, sinful, monstrous plays, including sexual relations on the open public stage. That was the world of the first century. And that was the world that Jesus called his church to evangelize. Go you, therefore, to the whole world. Do you think God knows his business tonight or not? Do you think God cares? Do you think God is concerned about the groaning millions yet that have never heard the gospel of our blessed Lord? Oh, thank God, as Martin Luther sang, the Spirit and the gifts are ours. He sends us replenished by the Spirit. He's given to us the ministry of reconciliation. We have given the ministry of word and sacrament to go to the entire world. Go ye therefore to all the nations, teaching whatsoever things I have commanded you, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And lo, I am with you always even to the end of the world uh, dearest friends here tonight uh, we may think all we want commiserate ourselves but it's not church pity parties that God is calling us to do but he is calling us to the great work the noble work 
the work of great moral earnestness to take the glad tidings, the good news to every creature. And it is good news. It's not bad news tonight. It's the best news this world has ever known. It's the best news that Jesus Christ can reach down into the most depraved human hearts. He can deal with our sins. He doesn't just deal with a few peripheral issues. Now, I'm a conservative tonight. I believe in the old-fashioned conservative lifestyle. But I want to tell you this evening, I get pretty weary about preachers. All they can preach about is a few externals. I get so sick and tired of it. As all, there was nothing to the religion of Jesus Christ but a few prim and proper little externals. Does Jesus merely deal with a few peripheral issues? Or does he deal with the deep ingrained horrors of the human heart? Does he deal with the entrenched pride, the entrenched arrogance, the stupid rebellion against the very will of God, the kind of thing that makes us proud and monstrous, uh, the kind of thing, as Spurgeon says, that makes a man a saint on Sunday night and on Wednesday night prayer meeting and on Thursday night board meeting, it makes him a devil. Uh, does Jesus deal with those issues in our lives? Is he really a perfect savior? Can he really save to the uttermost? Uh, can he deal with the deepest issues of the human heart? Is it really true that where sin did abound, grace shall much more abound? Can Jesus take nagging, sharp-tongued uh, women uh, that almost ruin their husband's life and make saints out of them? Uh, is that really a possibility? Can God take foul-mouthed, ugly, crude men who make the lives of their families a hell on earth, can he transform them? Is it really possible that God is in the process of making saints out of us? Is it really possible with all of our ugliness and our manipulativeness, our selfishness, our crudity? Come on, folk. It's not only in the holy book. We all know the story of our own hearts. Uh, the kind of thing that makes us stomp on the face of the guy on the carpet ladder beneath us in order to advance our own cause, the push and shove of behind-the-scene politics, uh, selfish drive, uh, the movers and the shakers uh, who would do anything even in the name of religion to get their own way. Does Jesus Christ have an answer to that? Is he able to save to the uttermost? Is he able to cleanse the deep recesses of the human heart? Is he able to renovate the deep wellsprings of our motives and our desires? Is it really true that he can enable us to love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and mind and strength as we love our, our neighbor, as we love ourselves? Is that just merely a magnificent fairy tale? Or can Jesus Christ really do those marvelous works in our lives? Well, glory to God. The world still waits. The world still waits tonight. The great call, the great mission, what we need above everything else, and I close, is not merely wimpish pity parties, but we need to catch the vision again. We need to rang up. We need to raise up our old apostolic colors the old Methodist colors that set our movement aflame to begin with and go out again and do the works that he calls us to do. I do know this tonight, that he does not leave us alone. And I do know this tonight, that everywhere around this spinning globe, this terrestrial ball, to quote the hymn that you sang earlier tonight, the spirit of grace and reconciliation is everywhere at work. And I would tell you this evening, as someone said about St. Francis of Assisi, there is a homesick for holiness in every human heart. And Dr. Daniel Steele reminds us that in every human breast there is an enemy to the devil. Because in every human heart there is a desire sometimes to be better and to be nobler. You remember before your own conversion... 
And it's the work of the Spirit everywhere to fan the desire into flame. And you and I are to preach in the name of Christ and in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. That is our message. That is our work. That is our calling uh, to do the works of our divine master. He came into the world to do the works of the Father. Uh, and he is sending you and me into the world to do the works of his Father. Even as he has sent me, so I send you replenished with grace to do my works. And that was the call of that first Easter day. And that is still the call tonight. For there are millions who have never even heard the name of Christ our Lord. And this gospel first must be preached before his coming we are called this evening everywhere to do his works. How noble to think that we are called upon to prepare a kingdom for our king. Hallelujah. How wonderful to think that everywhere you and I are called upon to press the crown rights of Jesus Christ. Everywhere we are to do the bidding of our divine master. And I see encouraging signs. I see even among us now some of our young people who are saying, I'm tired of the doldrums. I'm tired of the paralyzing thing. We've got to do something more than really sit in our little room rural churches, uh, to the inner cities, uh, to the heartbeat of America, where the crossroads are, to the ghettos, uh, where the boys and girls are tonight, as I have said before, who walk the streets of Philadelphia and Harrisburg and Chicago this very night while you and I are sitting here selling their bodies for crack and for the most unspeakable weakness and wickedness. Jesus calls us to do his work. And it may be to the inner city ghettos where the black, where the asphalt pavements are repulsive. It may be to the uttermost parts of the world. But may I say tonight, God is calling us to do his work. And we are not going alone. But we're going to do the bidding of our Lord, who 2,000 years ago on a first Easter night assured his disciples that he was giving them peace and that he was sending them to do his work. Whosoever sins you remit, they shall be remitted. Whosoever sins you retain, they shall be retained. Your job is to preach the conditions of pardon. Those who accept it will be saved, and those who reject it will be lost. What a noble work tonight that Christ is calling us to do. And that's your call, that's your summons, and that is mine. Tonight, it seems like God is breathing again upon the holiness movement. That God is awakening us in our sleepy doldrums. It wasn't really our faith, I know in most cases, that brought Eastern Europe's communist empire to its knees. And that should shame us, because we were convinced it wasn't going to happen, weren't we? But it did happen. And all over Eastern Europe, there were saints who were praying. You talk about persecution. You talk about the great, the great tribulation. If you had been behind the Iron Curtain for 70 years, more martyrs have died in the 20th century than in all the history of Christ's church. I want to suggest to you tonight that the impetus that has been given in the last decade reminds us that there are more opportunities in this spinning world of ours for world evangelism than there has been since the great ships of Queen Victoria's empire 130 years ago went steaming to India and to Africa. And in there are some ways it's the greatest opportunity since the days of the apostolic church. Dear friends, these are exciting times. Are you listening to me, kids? No pity parties. No whining about wishing you lived in some other day. Thank God we live in 1996. Thank God we live in our day. God help us not to flub it. God help us not to lose our opportunity. Uh, oh, may we serve our generation according to the will of God. Uh, God grant that we shall not be unworthy sons and daughters of noble fathers and mothers. Lord, help us again tonight to rejoice in the work that he has given us to do. Ours is the noblest calling that God has ever given to any man or woman. And that is the calling of that first Easter night. It's the calling that is incumbent upon us all. Will you stand tonight? I don't want to take for granted the hair.
Thank you for listening to Convention Pulpit, a ministry of Interchurch Holiness Convention, featuring Wesleyan voices past and present. For more sermons or for more information, visit www.ihconvention.com. This ministry is made possible through the financial support of our listeners. You may give online at ihconvention.com or send your donation to IHC, Post Office Box 99, New Berlin, Pennsylvania, 17855 USA. I don't want